0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, jumping in to tell you about this week's episode of Meat and Three, Heritage Radio Network's Weekly Food Roundup. This week, we're introducing you to some amazing women taking a stand.
2: So often, being sexually harassed feels like a loss of control, and so I wanted to have these very tangible
3: guides to say,
1: here's what you can do. Others are pushing for more diversity at major food industry events.
3: I still feel really determined to do, you know, whatever I can to help shift that and in a direction that's not just more diverse, but more equitable.
2: We also have a report on that summer business staple, the lemonade stand.
0: The lemonade stand might be the purest form of starting a business. Low overhead, easy to get into, and requires little experience or special equipment.
1: Don't miss Meat and 3, your weekly 15-minute food news roundup from HRN. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Search M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. And thanks, as always, for listening.
2: Welcome to in the sauce, a new podcast about building food brands. We live in a culture that romanticizes entrepreneurship and the hustle. The epics from the top of the mountain are inspiring, but what I really want to hear are the stories from the trek uphill. I want the stories about the bruises and the scrapes we all get as we build our businesses. I want to hear about the roads that led to nowhere and the lessons learned along the way. And I want advice in real time. This is the story of Haven's Kitchen Sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand, because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Camilla Marcus, lawyer, chef, investor, business consultant, one-time college admissions officer, and entrepreneur. Is there anything I've forgotten in the bio?
3: (laughs) (laughs) You know... Trying to be all things all the time. I guess that's the the founder's job. Right. (laughs) Multi-hyphenate, I think, is the word. Um, The new trendy word. But not many people know I was in college. I know. That's kind of,
2: I feel good about that one. Um, So my 16-year-old daughter met you and immediately declared you uh, her hero, which thrilled me because she saw this beautiful, confident woman who so thoroughly trusts herself. And that is, I think, the thing that shines when people meet you. Um, So I'd like to hear a little bit about your journey. Um, sort of when did you have a moment in your childhood where you decided you wanted to touch food and be around food and serve people food? Did it come later? How did you kind of get into the food world? And you've come at it from a whole bunch of different angles, which we'll get into, but really, I guess, why food?
3: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think as I'm sure you can attest to, you go along your life and then people ask you questions like this and you actually get to really take stock of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my mom is from a big family. Her mom died when she was very young. And really to sort of keep the troop organized, no one was allowed in the kitchen. So my dad actually had no idea when they got married that my mom had no idea how to boil water. She right. had never seen a stove and they got married. And he was like, what's her dinner? And she's like, I don't know, you tell me. So she actually ended up Really learning to cook, really as a late adult with kids. Um, she's actually an amazing cook, but it really isn't a passion for her. She really doesn't right. enjoy it. Um, she actually even rarely now lets me cook first. She's like, let's just go out. It's easier. right? Um, so I think I really took on a lot of the passion for food, for cooking, for preparing things in the home, because I could see it really wasn't sort of her sweet spot, if mm-hmm. you will. And I don't know. She tells me a lot of stories of when I was a kid and, you know, I was in there making Thanksgiving and, to me, there's just nothing better than cooking for a large group. I definitely can't cook for one or two people, which is really hard. I can't hard either. For me, I
2: and my college roommate used to be really mean about it because for some reason she thought that I purposely made a lot of dishes or mess or whatever. I literally couldn't. I was like an army chef from the time <laughs> I was a kid. That's so funny. Well, no one ever taught us how to like portion probably. I
3: just don't enjoy it. Right. I like cooking for, you know, again, I come from a, a big family. Yeah. My grandma lived with us our whole lives until she passed. And, you know, we're just a loud, boisterous, very large, extended family. And I just don't enjoy it. I like getting to make, you know, 20 different things and really things from scratch and having everyone come around and really taste things. When it's one person telling you, you did a good job, I'm kind of like, eh. right? You know, you have to say that. Right. I'm the one feeding you. But in a group, you're sort of like, yes, this is bringing people together and, building community. And I had the great foresight of living with a lot of roommates in college. So we had a once a week uh, family meal, if you will, where That's I would cook awesome. for everyone. And, you know, really just a time to bring everyone together and to chat about the week. So really from a very young age, I've always been an adventurous eater. My dad worked in Japan most of my childhood. And mm-hmm. so I was raised on sushi and Japanese food well before it was really popular. We really had to go down a to little Tokyo and Los Angeles right. to really get that, you know, he wanted to share what he was experiencing in his work and his travels. So I don't know, even from a young age, I mean, I was eating uni and crazy things that, you know, four-year-olds don't normally eat. My parents would laugh. I'd sit at the sushi (laughs) counter, I guess they'd tell me and say, try and scare me. Like I eat everything. They're like, you are crazy.
2: Did you think at all growing up that you would be doing something food related professionally?
3: I did in some ways. I knew I wanted to go to culinary school, which I went to right after college. It was always a bucket list thing. I just, I always felt like I would be even better whether I did it professionally or not. I would be even better and have more fun if I sort of knew the tricks, the hacks, the real right. technique. Yeah, like um, demystify
2: it for yourself. Exactly. Like wasn't I could be even did, better if right. I
3: really knew what I was doing. Um, you know, for a while I loved design and fashion and I definitely thought that was originally going to be my path. And then I kept trying all these different jobs in high school and college and just never found the fit and never spoke to me. And mm-hmm. really when I went to culinary school, I just loved everyone, everything. I'm a very high octane, you know, I love the intensity, the passion. And for me, it really blended left brain, right brain. I mean, right. I love it because most chefs say I'm bad at math and science when really all you do is math and right.
2: science. Yeah, that's so funny. They just that's don't true. see it that way. Yeah. And
3: yet you have the artistry of obviously plating and we eat with our eyes and how, you know, you make a restaurant come to life. But it's as much that as it is, you know, starting a business. How do you create recipes? How do they work? How does someone else replicate it? And, you know, there's physics, there's chemistry, there's math and all the right. things that I enjoyed when I was younger. I've always been very into art and design, but also very passionate about math and science, right. which, you know, it schools tend to separate
2: It's like architecture in a way. Totally. It's like a perfect combo.
3: And the so, people were lovely and earnest and warm and no BS and there's right. no real politics. I mean, all the things that for me, I was like, oh, my God. Right. In culinary school is when I thought, all right, this is really it. Now I have to figure out what really works as far as what my real role will be. But I fell in love pretty instantly through that and then through the opening of Delanima. So um, tell me about it,
2: that because you, you went to college. You majored
3: in... I made up several my things, major. right? <laughs> <laughs> right, I remember this. I'm you- well, like being told what to do, so I sort of put together a bunch of classes I thought would be interesting and said it was a major they didn't offer, and that I should be allowed to do it. So, right. But I went to undergraduate business school, finished, went to culinary school. When all my friends went into banking, um, you know, in 2007, that seemed like a really insane idea. And, you know, my guidance counselor was sort of like, I'll be here for you if you ever need me. No one understands you, but, you know, let me know if you need a job. (laughs) Right. And then
2: after, and so you went right into culinary school, but you didn't think you wanted to be a restaurant chef, or you you kind of wanted to see what it would be like, or what what led to the next...
3: I very much really take a holistic approach to things even in sort of career searching. I always say I'm so jealous. A lot of my college roommates are doctors. I wish at age 18 right. I had had that calling and really knew, all right, this is what I'm doing. This is how I'm getting there. And just never really had that. I never had that aha moment. Um, so when I was in culinary school, I was in the night program. And actually I actually have not told anyone this story. So I'm telling you, Allie, for the first time. It's exclusive. Um, <laughs> So I ended up, you know, I was in the night program, and I like to keep very busy. I worked, as I said, in college admissions and right. had a side job as well in college. So I like to keep very intensely busy. And so I thought, all right, well, like, what am I going to do till I go to the kitchen at, you know, 5, 6 o'clock? I got to do something. I can't just wait around. And all my friends work, so, you know, there's right. no one I have fun with. And so I ended up originally interviewing with Merrill Lynch, real estate investment <sighs> banking. <laughs> And, you know, I thought, all right, I can kind of appease my parents and do this finance thing. And they ended up having a special program where people basically share shifts. So one person be the night shift, you be the day shift, and you share an analyst position. Wow! And again, 2007, one, I mean, a role like that is pretty coveted, two, right. Merrill Lynch was totally at the top of the game. Again, right. no one could see 2008 <laughs> right. really coming, but it was really prestigious. It was really hard to get. It was very competitive. And I got it. And... Literally, I think day one from the bathroom, I called my dad. And I was like, you know what? There may come a day when someone sucks my soul, but today is not that day. It was, was like, just the, Excuse it was
2: just like the cubicles or the, like the, no the energy. No one liked it. No yeah. one liked
3: it. And he said to me, what do you mean you just got there? You know, this is a huge, prestigious thing. I can't right. believe you even convinced them to take you on. You know, you're in culinary school. Why would they take you? Right. It's good training. And my parents are very conservative in that way. And, you know, I said, I just... These people hate being here. Every yeah. person the first day, the first thing they told me is, I've worked here one year, three days, four hours, two oh minutes and I'm gonna quit, you know, at year right. two. You know, like we're twenty two years old. Yeah. Life at this age has to be better than that. And so, contrasted
2: with the feelings that you were getting at night at culinary school. 100%. I mean that's just so after So I quit school. three days later. So you quit Merrill Lynch. And I
3: walked right up to, so August Cardona was um, one of the owners of the Epicurean Group. Uh, and uh, the launcher of Delani along with his amazing team, including Joe Campanal and Gabe yep. Thompson and Catherine Thompson. And, you know, all of them were pretty much first-time restaurateurs. A lot of them right. had been industry veterans, but not necessarily ground up starting their own thing. and. Right. We knew August for a very long time. He had no idea he was, you know, selling us wine underage. age. Bless his heart. And he graduated college. He was like, great, now you're of age. And by the way, please meet Joe campanella You guys right. are the same age That's and so you'll funny. get along. Right. You know, and I said, I know that you're in the process of opening and launching Delanima. Um, you know, I think I'm mildly smart. I'm hardworking. I really just want to understand this industry start to finish. I'm right. in culinary school, but that only gives me part of the picture. And I think in hindsight again, that would be I think very telling as to how I approach things. Right. I never just want to know one way. And I said, look, put me to work. Mm-hmm. I'll be here every single day. I just want to learn. I'll literally do anything you know, and I can work for free back in the day when you could, right. He's like, don't tell people you worked for free. I'm like, well,
2: no, it was okay back then. I feel like totally. until just a couple of years ago, it was okay.
3: Well, and I had no experience. Right. So I thought if I'm not free, so what did what you do? I like, offering? what
2: did you, you would get to work at what time?
3: Yeah. So, you know, get to work around nine o'clock. They were dinner only at that time. And, you know, this was before open table. So, right. you know, we were interviewing, um, you know, reservationists and, no one could say the word Del Anima. It was actually amazing, and I kept saying we right. can't hire someone who can't say the name. Right, and so I ended up being pretty good. I'm again very visual. I came from visual arts when I was a kid, so I loved the floor plan and like right. moving everything around, and it was the greatest puzzle. So I loved that, and I could really talk to people. You and must sort of have make been the best debt.
2: intern in the world. I'm like, <laughs> I'm thinking like. <laughs> How lucky someone is to get you as an intern. I
3: mean, frankly, no I feel experience. like similarly, I'd
2: be a pretty good intern, too. <laughs> like,
3: now, but, you know, you know, I had literally, I never worked in a restaurant right. ever before. Yeah, but you were just leak. eager
2: to do anything that they wanted you to do. And you kind of loved every minute of it. Mm-hmm. So you were just psyched. You well, know? I just
3: felt grateful they would take a chance. And I felt, I always tell people, even today, work on an opening and work with a young restaurant team and I don't mean in age I mean no experience like go in the beginning go before they're growing because that's when you really learn the in and out Mm -hmm. and and there's more opportunity to take things on there's no one that does that role right you can sort of say hey I want that I want that I want want to help with this I want to help with that there's no okay your job is to right because you don't start
2: hiring that way for at least two years right where you're then not hiring this amazing personality but you're starting to hire for a specific job Yeah. So, so, you know,
3: Joe would bring me to wine tastings and I learned so much about, you know, wine curating and why the beverage program is important and margins and how you deal with distributors and why those relationships matter. And, you know, everything from helping prep cook a little in the morning to, you know, composting was really new. Action was the first company to do it. We'd been doing it in culinary school and coming from California. I'm like, how is composting new? What are you talking about? Right. You know, and really talking about energy efficiency for the first time and being able to really drive those conversations, you know, it's a totally open playing field. And I loved every minute. And I think really, I tell everyone who wants to get into food, work at a restaurant, Mm -hmm. call up the GM at your favorite restaurant, or just ask the floor manager and just give your time, give your energy, give your passion. Let them teach you. Like, come in knowing you know nothing. It's very hard to hire someone who really has never gotten their hands dirty in the industry in any shape or form.
2: So you finished culinary school, and and you were working at Delanima during culinary school, right? Mm-hmm. And then what happened next?
3: So interestingly, uh, they had just right around the time I was leaving, they were signing the lease for Lartuzzi mm-hmm. and had been talking about expanding. And obviously, you know, when you think about Delanima versus Lartuzzi, it's almost two x size, business right. model, private dining, all of it. It was really a whole new level for them, and pretty quickly, you know. Within the first year of operation, which is a big deal. And I actually called my dad and I said, I'm ready to make my first investment. And he goes, oh, yeah, <laughs> tell me. Again, you're, you're the youngest and the only girl. Right. You don't always take it get taken seriously. And I said... I need a loan. I will pay you back, but obviously I'm a student right now and mm-hmm. I don't have anything to my name. <laughs> um, but write me a loan. I want to go in and I want to invest in Lartuzi. It's worked just with so them. funny I that them. you
2: wanted to. I didn't know what an investment was until <laughs> like I was 35. I mean, it's just amazing that at that age. I mean, I guess you were sort of you had gone to Wharton, so you you knew a little about money, but you were going to invest in a new restaurant. With money that you didn't have. Correct. Because you just thought they were such a great team.
3: I just, you know, I really saw the secret sauce that they had. I felt that, you know, the reception to Delaunima, again, we forget, you know, that area of the West Village and even the West Village and meatpacking was very early in the development. Mm -hmm. There was not the... You know, the glitz and the glamour that it has now. Right. But I could see that changing and I could see people grabbing onto Delima. I mean, again, I did host reservations, so I spoke to every person. I knew what they were looking at and what they were enjoying about it. So I said, look, this is what you do. You invest in concepts, you invest in people, and you invest in what you think is a growing market. Like, this is it. My dad laughed me on the phone. He goes, yeah, you're crazy. I'm helping you with tuition. Like, thank you, no, pass. Right. Hard pass. <laughs> so I told August, I'm like, you know what? I I can't this time. You know, and he didn't approach me. I was sort I'm of begging sure. him. Like, he, I want in, I'm I want sure in. He and he's like, right. you're you know, 23. What are you talking about? And so I said, you know what? But when I have my own cash in the bank, I will be that next investor. I promise you the next thing you do. And flash forward many years later, I did invest in Infora, which is their wine bar. Wow.
2: That's so cool. Yeah. So, and what still was to your this first day, investment? I was right about where to see yeah, My very dad was so. very wrong. The fact it's that it's one of my dad's still, favorite restaurants. And they're still kicking it. And it's totally. been a decade. I mean, that's really unusual. So, Go I August.
3: have had to have. Had the great fortune of having a lot of special events at L'Artusi And I love, right. you know, every time my dad's there and enjoying a meal. I'm like, see, right. you were wrong. Could were have wrong. been a contender. <laughs> so what was your first investment? So my first investment was actually, so after culinary school, I went to get a JD MBA at NYU of and continued to work during that time. Um, JD is legal. Mm-hmm. And, and did you think you wanted to be a lawyer? No, I had no intention of being a lawyer. Uh, I really went for my mom. She right. really always felt very strongly that a law degree would just be such a backbone. You know, she felt very strongly, especially for a woman. You know, you sign a lease, you right. sign a contract, you know, you're dealing with an employment issue mm-hmm. or anything in between. And she really said, I just never want you to feel like you have to depend on someone else. I want you to have the confidence of knowledge. You do not have to be a lawyer. I don't expect you to be a lawyer. I do expect you to take and pass the bar in any right. state you choose. Um but she was really, and she was right. I mean, it is one of the best backgrounds, really teaches you how to think differently and how to use resources. Were
2: there any other lawyers in your class who were also just out of culinary school who had also gone <laughs> to Wharton? No.
3: No, and actually, there were like 10 of you? No. I we mean, were the first year that NYU. Um, decided to waive the GMAT if you had somewhat of a finance background. So two friends of mine in the JD program, along with myself in year two, applied into the joint program. So we were three of five JD MBAs that year because they were trying to encourage more joint programs. But you were the only chef. (laughs) I was. People liked me a lot. Having me sitting groups over was was a pro. I did one summer as a lawyer, which extra confirmed that I did not want to be an attorney. But... My boss that summer ended up opening a lot of doors for me, and absolutely became one of the great mentors of my career. That's so, awesome. you know, even if you don't want to be that person or you don't want that job, um, don't burn know, any bridges. Never, you yeah. never know. So he ended up giving me an offer at the end of the summer, and I said, you know, I'm doing this joint program, and you know, you're so amazing. You love this job so much. I see how deeply your passion is for this profession. I don't have even a fraction of that. Right. And if that's not contagious to me now, the you know he was the architect of all the bank bailouts. I mean, really one of the most incredible lawyers of any generation. Right. If this doesn't make me want to practice on, nothing will. And I don't want to take this opportunity from someone who wants it. He actually said, I was so shocked that you would turn it down. You had no backup. You had no other job. Right. And he really could have played me. He could have said yes and just dumped it You know, right. when you got your job. The fact that you had enough integrity to tell me now... I will help you get any job you want. Any job when you're ready, you call me and I will make a personal phone call to them to hopefully open that door.
2: And did you take him up on that?
3: I did. A couple of years later, he got me my job at CIM Group. And 100% it was due to his introduction. That's awesome. Because not being a banker, not being able to tell them I quit my bank job after three days. So it's no- not really lean into a private <laughs> no, equity true. job so well.
2: So normally I would get the whole sort of background of, where we are until now <laughs> before the break but because you have this incredibly storied varied very I, I don't know what the word would be because if you're multi-hyphenate i don't know if it would just be hyphenate <laughs> kind of uh story i think we're gonna take a break and it. then we'll come right back and we'll learn what you did after you said no to the big law job
1: Think about what it takes to swim a coastline longer than the entire eastern seaboard and leap tall waterfalls in a single bound. What does it take to survive 200 feet deep in icy saltwater? What would you be made of? Wild Alaska seafood is made of tight muscle mass, long chain omega-3s, and incredible micronutrients. It matters where your food comes from. Experience the flavor of the fittest in every bite and enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood Wild, Natural, and Sustainable. Ask for Alaska on the menu, grocery store, or smart device. For more information, visit WildAlaskaseafood.com. I'm
2: Allie, and you're listening to In the Sauce. I'm back with Camilla Marcus, I <laughs> the words to describe you, multi-hyphenate food business guru, um, and we left off where you had just decided you did not want to be a lawyer, you wanted to make an investment in a restaurant business, but you didn't have the money. So, two questions. What? did you end up doing that was your first kind of like, I love this and this is kind of what I've meant to be doing. And then what was your first investment?
3: Yeah. So the first, I think sort of uh aha, I think I'm kind of on the right track finally Mm -hmm. um, moment was so after, uh, actually just before the law job and sort of around the same time um, I ended up developing a project which became river park, with Tom Colicchio and his team as well as Appella which is a conference center on the second floor of that building um, really getting to to develop that whole activation really start to finish you know I cold called Peter Bentel who again one of the great mentors of my life and you know couldn't have known where that led and said you know we're on this project on 29th and 1st it's a wasteland want to build a restaurant with me and he was like you're crazy but I like you why don't you come to Long Island and we'll chat so Really getting to work on the creative, the design, the concept, the branding, the finances, the deal, and really putting all the pieces together. Did you use your legal degree in that context? I did. And And
2: your business degree. All of it. You know,
3: even thinking about, okay, in this neighborhood, given the tenant base, you know, what should the food be? What should the concept be? And really getting to be collaborative and bringing together all of these amazing, talented people that I looked up to so much and getting to see that come into something that improved the neighborhood, that was amazing for the building, that the teams were proud of, just that was really the time when I thought, all right, you know, this is more what i meant right. to be doing. Now um, I'm cooking with gas. My first investment was in a, a business school colleague who was working on a digital wedding platform. Um, you know, I think, investing in what and who you know is, you know, always the way to go, especially when you're first starting out. And then very shortly thereafter was my investment in Anfora. Um, and I really started to get the bug from there. I loved, I love seeing what other people create and what's in their minds. And I feel privileged to be able to help grow and give advice and obviously give capital. And, um, yeah, it really started to sort of spiral from there. And
2: can you, Tell me a little bit about Tech Table, because I don't know how it kind of falls in. I know that you were doing business development um, and primarily restaurant development, and I'm assuming that you saw sort of a white space where there was...
3: So I left, I finished my JD MBA, actually took the California bar exam. Ended up getting a job at CIM Group, which was an L.A.-based real estate private equity fund. Mm -hmm. Ironically, I ended up covering most of their East Coast portfolio, a lot of New York. They had just raised and saved a ton of money in the economic downturn, were really ready to sort of come back like gangbusters. And New York was a big target for them. One of their big focuses was restaurants and hotels. So I ended up very naturally moving into all retail and hotel hospitality-related investments with A guy named Bill Doak, again, another great mentor of my life. So nice. Um, And, you know, had sort of right before taking that job again, chatting with Peter Bentall and saying, you know, we had negotiated with Danny Meyer and the team on the River Park Project. It was sort of him and Tom Colicchio. And we ended up going with Tom for a number of reasons. And, you know, but I gotten to know the company a little bit through that process. And I called Peter Bentall and I said, you know, like, what does Danny do for business development? Do they have a team? Are they hiring? What are they thinking? I'm finishing up my program now. It might be an interesting fit. He said, I don't know, but I'll call them. I'll make a personal recommendation. You know, let me get you introduced to the president at the time, Jeff Flug. So um, flash forward, we ended up, it took many months to sort of connect and figure it out. And ultimately, I ended up getting the job at CIM and thinking that it was just such an amazing opportunity to go again another step out. So if I went from operations to You know, business development. Here, I could be on the landlord investor side and really, again, see full scope what this business is about. Um, So I said, you know, I really think I have to take this other job in California. I feel like I could come back to restaurants, but it's hard to get into private equity funds, especially young. And you know, after all the schooling, I wasn't that young anymore. Mm -hmm. So I thought, you know, I just really have to do this. And no matter what, I think it'll make me a better candidate. And you know, all my friends said, "You're turning down the dream job? What are you doing? This is crazy." Mm -hmm. And I said, "I just." Believe in signs, and my gut is telling me this is right. Right. So I ended up turning down the position with USHG, moving to LA, working for CIM, but keeping in touch with them. And about a year and a half later, started poking around back and saying, "All right, who did you hire for this role?" And they said, "Actually, no one." Right. I well, they, there
2: wasn't a role. Right. It was kind of like there wasn't a major. You sort of like created the role for yourself to some I thought
3: someone would have jumped into it, whether internal or otherwise. And to see that that still was open again was sort of another sign. And I thought I just, so I said, can I interview again? And they said, you'd move back. And I said, well, for this I would. So came back to New York, became director of business development for Danny and Pretty pivotal time in the company's history when Shake Shack went public. They had four chef transitions, four openings in basically an 18-month period. So we can seated. you break down
2: business development a little bit for <laughs> just everyone?
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I always say, actually, it really depends on every single company. Everyone labels that differently. Um, you know, at USHG, when I came on board, it was really establishing the department. They'd never had the department set. Um, everything from partnerships to, you know, Creating new business lines, to launching the restaurant, getting it open, to, you know, we seeded the business plan for what became Enlightened Hospitality Fund and really talking about the business and where it should be in one, three, five years. And then really setting up systems and structure. Um, Ironically, I felt like my hunch really was right and paid off because all the tools, the infrastructure and the way of thinking at CIM, I was really able to institute right. in a pretty meaningful way. Um, so it was sort of like being in a little startup in a 30 year old company. Right.
2: So that's the most fun. Cause you actually have some <laughs> money to play with ideally.
3: So tech table really came out of myself, the head of, um, technology, Maureen Cushing and Lauren Hobbs, who was head of marketing at the time, you know, we had we were all naturally friends and Mm -hmm. really from the start. And then the more we started talking, meeting people, we realized this was really an emerging cross section of industries. Hospitality tech was very, very new.
2: And more, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like more focused on systemizing things like reservation and delivery and booking through technology, not necessarily tech the way we think of it now
3: yeah, I mean, the only thing the only games in town really were all very, very at the start of what I call the operation cycle, really guest facing and you know very basic stuff. And that makes sense because someone who's a technologist or an entrepreneur is going to sit in a restaurant and be like, What could be better? You know right. they don't know the back of the house. They don't right. know all the things that are involved in operations. So it makes sense. And so we started seeing, you know, they were pitching us for advice or investment or a partnership or sales. Mm-hmm. And we kept comparing notes and saying, you know, the left hand's not talking to the right hand. You know, right. and operators are very gun-shy. They don't want to meet with all these technology companies. They can't go through the clutter. They don't speak the same language. Right. They're not in the same We don't have the time, method. you know? It, and tech is all about... It iterating, which in restaurants, you don't get a second chance. Like right. if you mess up someone's meal, they are not coming back. Right. So you don't have that chance to be like, oh, our system was down. So sorry. Come right. back tomorrow. Right. Whereas in tech, it's the opposite. You fail, it doesn't matter. Tomorrow's a new technology, a new version. Everyone uploads it. You're cool. Right. So there really was Unless so much Snapchat. misalignment. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. And, you know, tons of really sophisticated investors were coming into this market, right. and yet- you know, we sort of felt like the solutions were very uncollaborative and not really geared towards the right avenues. And so ourselves, and then we linked up with Jackie Batson, who was doing sort of experience and a lot of the culinary initiatives at Google, we all really were, frankly, naturally over lunch, sort of talking about the same thing and saying, there's got to be someone that's bringing these people together. This doesn't make sense. There's so much wasted talent and capital and time on these solutions that just aren't working, and like no one's happy. You right. know, everyone, it's sort of bumper cars. And, and so we thought someone's got to create lanes and a place where they can meet and develop things together and collaborate. Um, and hence, there was nothing, and we launched Tech Table four years ago.
2: And it is still primarily focused on restaurant systems working better through technology?
3: So we sort of say it's high tech for high touch. It's uh, technology that improves business operations as well as the guest experience. And it's not just restaurants. It's really for anything in hospitality. I think a right. lot of the systems are applicable in hotels as well as airlines, as well as restaurants, right. both Anywhere fine and fast casual. casual. Yeah, that yeah. Makes sense.
2: So that was sort of your first, that was your first baby in a way. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And, you know, again, law comes in handy when you're forming things and trying right. to figure out IP and, you know, how it all fits together. Yeah. And then you left Union Square. So I left Union Square before the first Tech Table Summit, but about, I don't know, it had to be like six or nine months after forming it. So right. we had come up with the idea, you know, Danny said we support you whatever you guys want to do. Right. You know, let us know how we can help and we formed the company and then I left um just a couple of months before Tech Table launched to start what now uh is here and launched 6 months ago <laughs> right. which is called Westborn
2: which is I mean sort of I think of as like the culmination of all of these things, right? Because tell us a little bit about Westborn, but I mean keep in mind that you had all of these experiences and all of these different things that you did and they all kind of led to this one thing where you were able to
3: bring it all kind of together, I think. Absolutely. So we launched Tech Table and then very shortly after that, I launched Pound for Pound Consulting with two industry veterans and very dear friends, Danielle Freeman, Olivia Young. You know, and that I guess for us was also similar in scratching that itch of, okay, I may not want to, create a massive development in Western Manhattan, but I surely have a lot of ideas and people who would be interested in participating and people who should be collaborating and how can I help, um, even though it's something that maybe I primarily didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. So that's been a hugely, um, amazing creative outlet for me as well. And are well. you still
2: doing consulting projects I am. even we as are. you're... Yeah. D- launched your own thing. We are.
3: Right? Um, and you still have Tech Table? And we still have Tech Table. October 17th, 2018, it's coming back. Okay. Um, yeah. So, you know, right around the time, about six months before I left USHG, um, just had really been thinking about different models. You know, it's sort of what my job was. It's, you know, what's the next wave? What's coming? Right. Where can we go? What's different? And, you know, again, it was the height of, the focus on fast fine casual and obviously Shake Shack going public was a very big deal for a lot of reasons. And you know, the more I started to think about things, and I'm very big at drawing inspiration from different industries as well, you know, I was really raised very community oriented. My parents are both very immensely focused on giving back and very locally so. And the more I started to think, you know, the biggest brands, the ones that we idolize and admire, you know, like Warby Parker, for example, mm-hmm. and Tom's there's this element of giving back that's so thoughtful, so integrated, so strategic, and the guests and users and consumers, you know, it really like is in their heart. It's right. a very big driver of loyalty and a connection to that brand in it's a really meaningful way. It's also very
2: clear and clearly articulated. I think there are a lot of businesses that either, I mean, I'm not talking about like the social kind of responsibility stuff that's a little bit lip servicey, although probably meaningful, but even companies that are mission-driven, Sometimes it's not the first thing that you think of when for sure. you know that company, but in those cases, it's very clear. The stakes are in the ground. The language is there. You know, one for one. You know, it's
3: and I think it really started as as core to their beginning. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think a lot of people do a little bit of greenwashing later on. It's like, oh yeah, we've got to have a community piece. Let's add right. that to the blog and. You know, I just saw that being there, and then the dynamics of restaurants. Restaurants are so charitable; they care so mm-hmm. much about their communities. I mean, most people don't know. A lot of restaurants give big checks to major organizations, right. and you a know, lot large and small. Of, a lot of labor and a lot of food, and, and most guests have no clue. It, right? When I talk to my friends, you know, did you know that restaurant raised you know two million dollars for a cancer organization? Oh no, I had no clue. I'm right. like, why is no one? You know, again, you sort of see the tide changing and this huge groundswell, but. No one's really owned that space. No one has been the Warby Parker for food and restaurants. And yet, you think about our lives, we spend more time making decisions about food and beverage. We spend more capital. I mean, millennials spend more money on experiences and hospitality and travel than anything else, maybe next to rent. Right. You know, it is really becoming such an integral part to our culture. And yet, no one's really done it in a a meaningful way. You know, I think there are some cropping up a lot of nonprofits, not many are for profit the way right. Warby Parker is really structured and It's
2: also really hard. I mean, we were just talking about the idea of having a nonprofit restaurant with rent being what it is and labor being what it is in New York City. I just I can't even imagine that as a possibility. I mean, it's hard enough to be a not really profit, you know.
3: <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, look and I think you have You can only give what you have. And so I think you have to be geared towards having a sustainable business and a very constructive give back. And part of my passion was also, you know, I always say this I am so pro giving anything your time, your energy, and wherever you see it fit. But I really am passionate about improving your own backyard. I think that definitely comes and is inspired, comes from and is inspired by my mom. I think that, you know, for example, Westbourne's in Soho. we're partnered with the door which is three blocks away it's a full city block they service ten thousand young people in our neighborhood every year most people have no clue they've never walked by they don't know what it is they've never heard of it and really we live in one of the most amazing cities in the world we shouldn't have organizations like that we shouldn't have the challenges that we have as a major city um you know and to me it's everything is positive and impact is great but why are we giving our money away, taking money from our consumers and giving it elsewhere when we have real places to fix and real people to impact, real people to help, you know, here in every single neighborhood? So
2: so Westbourne is a social impact cafe. Yeah, so how- we're
3: an all-day restaurant, uh, 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. every single day. We were out of the gate. We did no partial hours. Right. of course. Day, day zero. Um And yeah, so we're LA inspired. All the dishes are really inspired by California, um, really the bounty of California and thinking thoughtfully about how what we eat can impact our environment. Um, We're mission driven. So 1% of every single purchase goes through our charitable partner, the Robin Hood Foundation to a local grantee called The Door we're investing in hospitality retraining for youth in the neighborhood, and then we hire from the program.
2: That's very cool.
3: And then we are vegetable-focused. So we right. sort of say we're accidentally vegetarian, right. decidedly wholesome, um, you know, again, really thinking about sustainability full-scale. So we're a zero-waste restaurant. We are very obsessive about making a positive impact um, on our environment, and again, the goal is just you come in, hopefully you think it's cool and inspiring and delicious and warm and welcoming, and, you know, all of these things are just really extra bonuses.
2: And so as an investor and now, because, you know, a lot of people, I have a whole lineup, right, for the next 12 weeks. Most of my guests are either entrepreneurs or either investors or branding gurus or, you know, sort of, they come with kind of like a a um, professional expertise, I guess. And so you're kind of a hybrid because you're both. And so I guess what I'd love to know is, how you've sort of applied, you know, how you make investment decisions, you know, to your your building of your own brand, you know? Like, what makes a great team? You know, what makes a good founder? What are the questions you ask?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately investing comes down to product, market, founder, fit, and they have to be this sort of perfect triangle that works well together. You know, you have to see the value in the product, You have to see that it fills a need in the market. The market should be big, vast, and growing, ideally. And, you know, and then I think the question is, is this founder the right person? Do they have, you know, it's funny, I always say, it's not even necessarily about the experience. I'd trade potential and passion and authenticity for experience. But it's, you know, are they really going to be able to handle the rocket ship? Is this a rocket ship? Is it going to outer space? And is this person going to be able to handle it because, you know, I like to seed invest. I really like very early stage. It's mm-hmm. where I find the most enjoyment and inspiration. And I always say to my, you know, I always say to founders, look, whatever it is today is not going to be the same, even right. in a year. Right. So I really don't even care that much about the product necessarily, because it is going to change. The question is, are you the person that's going to anticipate the change? Are you the person that's going to keep the waters calm when the boats rocking? You know, all of those things, that matters more to me. You know, are you a talent magnet? Are you that person that someone mm-hmm. just has to work for? Um... You know, and do you have that secret sauce? I mean, honestly, as a I <laughs> don't think it was an intentional. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it, I always think that it's interesting. There's such a big... Um, it's almost like a dirty word in entrepreneurship of talking about gut and feeling mm-hmm. and just instinct. And... You know, we sort of say it, but it's like, oh, no, no. But my model told me, you know, well, I, wrote, I did the model. And I think my we start off with that. that.
2: I mean, I can say from experience, you know, I built Havens completely on gut. There's nobody that would have invested in that. I mean, and, you know, now that I know a little bit more, it's almost more paralyzing, you know, because now I now I know what a gross profit margin is. And I know where it like dips into scary You know, before I was like, we have a good product. We do well behind it. We'll make it work. And we did. And it's almost like there's a, I think it's, is it Sarah Blakely who founded Spanx? But I think she said something about like her leg up was that she was inexperienced and that she didn't really Mm -hmm. know. I mean, and it's true. I feel like the more I know, the more nervous I am. I also
3: think experience can lead you, frankly, to using it as a crutch because Mm -hmm. the truth is. You know, there's this saying, what got you here won't get you there. So it really doesn't matter if you have the experience. I worry more about people with too much experience because they can't see the unknown. They can't see the unseen. You know, again, the founders and the leaders that I admire and that I want to invest in, they see something no one else does. I always say to them, this existed. And if I can come up with three parallels to your business, I'm not going to invest in you. I want to know that there's nothing really like this and that no one's like you. So what do you have? What's your vision what are you like that no one else can replicate? And does that really fit what you're telling me this product and market is? Is this right. really what you're meant to do? Um, you know, to me, I think, like I said, gut is a funny thing. And people always say to me, you know, people come to me for investment all the time and they say, okay, you know, what are your metrics? What are your KPIs? And, you know, I've been a mentor in residence for a while with tech stars and I always laugh. I'm like, Everything's an assumption at this point. And I used to say this even at CIM, and you know, it wasn't always popular. And I said, "You're going to tell me to tweak all the assumptions that the model tells you what you want it to say right. at the end of the day. We all know that. Can we just flash forward and let's talk about the real thing? Which is, do we feel like this market is really going to grow? Do we feel like this building makes sense in it? Do we feel like we can really program it to, you know, flourish in the long run? That's really what it comes down to. Because I can the same make the thing. numbers say whatever you want. Right. And if I tell you a KPI, you're going to come up with something that's going to show it. I mean. Right. The focus on WeWork's financials has been pretty eye-opening. You know, anyone who's worth their weight in salt who's an accountant or who's good at math, like myself, can make any number tell you anything they want. People lean on that because they want the security. They want the blanket. And they want to know that their brain is right. But the truth is, it's not the brain that works. It's the heart. It's the gut. It's that feeling, you know, that intuition to me, even as an investor, I mean, I know when I need someone, I'm usually one of the first checks in. Not only right. one of the first checks in, but many of the companies I've invested in, I've said to them, you're going to walk out of here and call me, a, you know what, but your name sucks. It doesn't right. align to the, what you're telling me this is about. Right. You it's get to the core of the brand. Right. You're going to pay Red Antler or right. any other major, you know, branding firm that's going to tell you the same thing in six months. And I hope you look back on this and laugh. But right. your name is not the right name. You need to change it. Everything right. else is great. This name is going to tank you. Every single one went exactly that way.
2: Wow, that's amazing. So I just we think won't go there's through the lists, but <laughs> <laughs>
3: what's Off a red flag? Air, I'll tell you. What's a red flag?
2: Like what? Or I mean,
3: um, a one big one. A lot of people do not know their competitors. Or they're afraid to name them. Right, and you know. Because they,
2: they want to be so original that they don't have any competitors, or, or they
3: don't really see them, right. or they don't really know the market, or their insecurity is getting in the way from facing it. And right. to me, I honestly feel this way about probably people as well as work. Um, uh, insecurity to me is the most dangerous quality. Totally, and I think it makes people do things that is not logical and isn't high integrity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, That, and probably truly integrity. I mean, I really value, even in, you know, the Westbourne team and amongst my partners in different businesses, you got to shoot me straight. Like, I can only deal and handle and help solve and help support things that I know about. I can't the things I don't. You don't want to invest in a founder who is hiding the ball. And I think it's very easy to find that out. And then third, I mean, really one of the main questions that I think is the most important is... I always ask a founder that I'm potentially investing in, why are you doing this? You know, you've Mm -hmm. already decided to take what to most is an insurmountable challenge to start a startup, to raise money, to launch something that you think doesn't exist or has never existed before. That means you could really probably do anything. You probably have a lot of grit, a lot of passion, a lot of character, and a lot of drive and skills. Why are you, why is this your target? Why is all of that aimed towards this? Tell me why. And really, to me, that ends up showing people's cards pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And you'd be amazed how many people say, oh, you know, I think it's a good business plan. Well, yeah, that's not the right answer. You want someone who says, and it's funny because you said the same thing. <laughs> I can't imagine doing yeah. anything else. I find this is what consumes me. It's what I'm talking about. It's what I believe in. And I am meant to do this. And this is my real passion and my purpose. Um, that's powerful. So for
2: someone who is clearly very confident with every reason to be confident and someone, (laughs) no, and you trust your instincts and that's one of the most appealing things about you. What makes you wobble? I mean, do you ever, do you ever doubt? Oh,
3: I mean, we're all human. (laughs) So I also think again, like I said, I think that arrogance is insecurity. I think confidence is a whole other side of the coin. Um, A lot of things make me wobble. I mean, I I think in, you know, Westbourne, the world of Westbourne, um, you know, the people. I really you everything revolves around the people, about them being passionate, about them feeling secure and safe, mm-hmm. a place where they matter, where they're being developed, where, you know, they're getting what they were told they're getting. And that's a hard thing in a living breathing right. business. And to me, you know, I my first hire was a head of HR. And right. a lot of people say to me, which we've talked about you know, but you only have one restaurant. Like, what are you talking about? I said, are you kidding me? I mean, to me, people and culture and development and learning is absolutely the most important thing. And the thing that keeps me up at night. I mean, to have people under your wing and not feel that they're in the right place or they're not trustworthy or they are, you want to make sure that they're getting where they want to go and that this is a place that fosters them. I mean, that, to me, is where, you know, all the things that keep me up at night definitely relate to our team and people and hires. And, you know, I will say, you know, there have been a few, even in six months. And, you know, my team, <laughs> they always say, in five minutes, you already know. And I go, right. I do. And a lot of times, I'll, I'll squash that and let the team go with the candidate, you know, if everyone's really on board. But it,
2: a you lot of times it ends up yeah.
3: playing out the way I think it will. Yeah. And so... Like I said, things make you wobble, but you have to listen to that. So the times when I wobble, I think I've just learned over time, just don't go down that path. You know, when your heart flutters and you're making a decision, I'm very calm normally. And I do feel I match the analytic with the gut. And so when I'm starting to wobble, I really try and veer and make a different decision because I know that that's, that's not right. And a great example of that is, you know, it took us 18 months to find the space for Westbourne and then about six months to get us open and develop it, um, even as a scratch build. I mean, we tore it to the studs. But right. two deals. One, the guy selling his lease pulled out literally at Signature after six and a half months of negotiating oh my gosh. when I was in California on a road trip. Wow. was brutal. And then the second, you know, I almost took the lease um, over from Blue Ribbon, Blue Ribbon Bakery, which became... Emily, right, uh, in the West village. And, you know, we were about to sign, we'd negotiated for six months and honestly I couldn't sleep. And I said to my husband, like, I'm just not like that. I'm not an up all night. I'm mm-hmm. not an anxious. I said, I can't put my finger on it, but it is not the space is,
2: for us. It's not right.
3: I, it is not it. And I am so concerned and I don't normally feel that way. And then a month later, you know, the Navy team wanted to get out of their lease. We negotiated in one month. Right. It was super easy. We all hugged. We're still friends. Right. and you know, we, it just went so smoothly and so naturally. And I never had a moment of wobble. And that's when I thought, all right, this is it. This is the place. That's actually
2: the most important lesson, right? Because it's not so much what makes you wobble. It's when you feel yourself start to wobble, you 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 listen and you know that there's something a little bit off and it might be the right space for someone else. It's just not the right space for you at that time. And
3: it's interesting. I always say, A lot makes me wobble, but I never let it last more than 24 hours. I really give myself sort of a day fully to think about it, tap into why. And you know what? Even if after the day I say I can't decide why I'm wobbling, I still just won't do it. I just know that's not my natural state. I don't feel comfortable in a wobble state. And so something's just not right and I just have to take a left turn.
2: So in terms of, we have time for like a couple more questions, but I just want to talk about goals a little bit. And... Hashtag um, goals, hashtag goals, and and planning, <laughs> right? Because I, um, you know, whether it's um, a five year strategic plan or a three year or two year, you know, I'm, um, I can kind of see where I think I want to end up. I don't know if that's five years or ten years or somewhere in between, and I can see like the next three to six months, but everything pretty much in between there. I feel like is a guess. And I it's very hard for me to sort of say like this is gonna be my plan and my goals and you know, this is the one year, two year, three year, you know, that sort of thing. And I know that a lot of people feel better doing that type of planning. And I'm just wondering how you sort of establish goals and how far out you set them and do you have sort of For myself or for our team? For yourself for every one of the businesses that you are yeah. involved with. And do you ask your founders about it when you invest oh. in them?
3: Um, yeah. I mean, I think for founders when I'm investing, I care much more about the big hair, you know, big hairy, scary pie in the sky goal. Cause I want to know where they're really taking it. Right. You know, I think the first year is then telling, and then you kind of can redefine where you want to go, but I care more about like, where are they dreaming? Are they aiming high enough? And is this, actually somewhat achievable Um, from, you know, my businesses. I First of all, I'm really, ironically, not that much of a planner. Mm -hmm. Um, Too much planning gives me a lot of anxiety. Like, what if I'm missing out and I don't see a new opportunity? I don't see something around the corner. I feel like I can't be my most flexible, adaptive self and allow my mind to think outside of the box when you're just sort of on the track, on the hamster wheel, too focused on the goals. So I think there's a middle ground You know, it was funny when I was – the first question I got when I was interviewing at USHG, someone said, what's your five-year plan? I said, you know, there's two ways this can go. I can lie to you and I'm really good at making up stories or I can tell you the truth. Like, look at my resume. I have no (laughs) idea. You know, I mean, that's the truth. And I think for businesses, there's somewhere in between. I think having the really big, like, where do I really want this to be at the end of the day? You know, for me to say – I really dream of Westbourne being something like a Warby Parker for hospitality, a really beacon brand and something that stands for something more than just eating and drinking and really bringing the community together. That's important. I think the team needs that main goal. Do you have focus. plans to open another one? Uh, potentially. Uh-huh. Got a, I got a lot of tricks up my sleeve. Right. I'm but, not surprised. But I think, you know, you have to think big enough to get people to follow something big. Right. And well, that's what think you said, I think thinking right? too small is a problem. And to your point of everything in between, you know, I think then having, okay, in this six months to a year, you know, three, six months and a year, what's that next step? Like what's right. step A to B? Let's just focus on that. But let's also keep in mind what Z is. Right. To me, everything in between doesn't matter right. because what the truth is you're going to- tr- What gives me anxiety
2: is M through S. Like oh, see, I'm That's really, the
3: part I'm so excited about. No, see,
2: I'm actually great at like A, B, C. Okay. And then I'm really good at like- T-U-V-W-X, but everything's sort of in the K through whatever. I, I'm so like, we'll collaborate because okay, right. that's the
3: part I love. I'm like, oh, but we know. So six months to a year, we got that. That's sort of the boring stuff. Right,
2: that's so funny. But
3: I think, again, a founder who is too structured and mm-hmm. has too much emphasis on that plan, nothing ever goes according to plan. right? And if you that's don't listen you to the road moving and you don't anticipate and you're not willing to, you know, Frankly, experiment and try things and detour a little bit, then you really won't. Now you won't (laughs) ever get to see. You know, right? It's not really pivoting because pivoting intends that you're going to something else that you also know about. To me, a detour is like I don't really know where this is going to go, but (laughs) you know that gate closed, and I just have to figure out another way. I think, you know, it's funny. My team always says you're very fluid in how you think, and sometimes it's a little scary. You know we get the big goal and we get the small goals, but then your mind is like, oh, that didn't work great. We're gonna go try this. Or maybe let's try these three things. Or did you think about that? Well, then my
2: team will like actually put together a plan and I'll be like, no, I didn't mean like today we're gonna try it. (laughs) I just meant like, maybe we'll try it. Okay, last I'm the opposite. I'm
3: like, let's do that today. What can we do today? To blow it out of the water and try something out of the box. And they're like, wait, today? I'm right.
2: Like, yeah, why not? We should like roll swap for a day. That would actually be really fun. <laughs>
3: What's it house swap or yeah, the holiday when swap? they like, Yes, or the holiday, yeah. Done. Um outcome of in the sauce.
2: So as people are building new brands, one thing that they should know. One thing that they should know when they're getting into it.
3: Um I would say... Uh, sorry, I'm going to make two. That's okay. Um, two is okay. Two is my lucky number. Uh, I always say this with business development, but I think it applies to brands too. And this is actually a little bit off of what you were just saying. I think that having a plan, like a structured plan year to year, this is you know where the puzzle's going to go, I think isn't logical and actually isn't realistic. But I do think having a strategy, mm-hmm. being very clear year to year, this is where we're going, this is what it is, this is who we are, to me... Everything, when you build a brand, needs to be in service of, in line with, and speak to, and be authentic to your strategy. Right. Everything, your real estate, what designer you use, what your price point is, what your packaging looks like. You know, mm-hmm. all of that needs to be totally seeped in your values where nothing lives outside of this strategy right. life and, you know, island. And really being able to stick with that and keeping focus. I think a lot of times brands get very swayed by, oh, you know it's all about Gen Z yellow now. And it's right. like, okay, but, you know, you started off with red. Like, you can get to yellow, but maybe you have to think about why right. and really it going feels back. so
2: It feels so inauthentic when they do that.
3: And authenticity. Right. I think that, you know, having a voice that is yours, that makes sense, that aligns with your values and your culture and your goals and what your business is about, you know, it's okay to be you. And I always say, if you're all things to all people, you are actually nothing. Right. It's like You Marmite. have to pick something.
2: Marmite, right? <laughs> people love it and they hate it. But the people who love it have loved it forever and will just keep buying it. And oh, you're not going to get sauce. someone. right. Not Don't everyone know. likes it spicy, but you know what? Okay. You got to stick to it. I love the it. way you brought it back to sauce just for the closing. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, so... Thank you, Camilla. Um, This was wonderful.
3: That was super fun. Everyone check out Westbourne. 137 Sullivan Street between Prince and Houston in Soho.
2: And um, please feel free to send me suggestions, um, ask us questions, send an email to Heritage Radio, and um, I'm happy to respond. And as we close, I just want to say a big thank you to David, our engineer, and uh, we will see you next time on In the Sauce.